0: The Pathology Research Congress, called Pathrid is hosted by the National Health Laboratory Services and is one of the largest gatherings of pathology experts in South Africa. It's a key platform for researchers to share knowledge and showcase innovative research. Pathrid 2023 was held in Johannesburg, South Africa, over the first weekend in September. Ruan and I were at the Congress and managed to get some snippets and summaries from speakers and delegates who attended. The content in this episode is varied and covers microbiology, virology, public health, and molecular diagnostics. We'd like to send a huge shout out and thanks to all who agreed to be interviewed. Since these were live interviews conducted at the Congress, you'll notice that the recordings are not as quiet as you're used to. This is part one of this two-part series. Before we head into the clips, remember to sign up on the Mail website for updates, follow us on social media, and remember to share with colleagues, students, laboratory staff, or anyone who might be interested in listening to some contagious mail. And oh, don't forget that five-star rating on your favorite podcast player.
1: This year, the PathRed Conference theme was next-generation pathology. Because that's one of my primary interests, next-generation sequencing and pathogen genomics, I gave a few talks at the conference. The first talk was a broad interview on bioinformatics for medical microbiology. I started off giving an overview of the applications, such as molecular epidemiology or delineation of virulence factors and uh, resistance genes, Um, moved on to explaining the different sequencing methodologies such as short read based Illumina sequences versus long read based Nanopore sequences, and just touched briefly on others such as PacBio. I then emphasized the importance of the sequencing procedures and sample extraction procedures um, in ultimately determining the, the final result, and how that all leads into the bioinformatic analysis that needs to be done um, explaining that, um, I moved on to the basics that that really you need to know about when you are starting to do a bioinformatics project, such as the file types whether it 's fast a or fast q, um, the Fred score and what exactly that entails. Um, what aligners are, such as hash-based aligners versus Burroughs-Wheeler transform-based aligners, such as the commonly used bowtie or um, BWA. And then I talked about what you can do with the output of all of these bioinformatics tools. So after you've generated your consensus sequence and multiple sequence alignment, you can draw phylogenetic trees, you can make inferences about the geographical spread of um, a pathogen over time, and then, obviously, you can also do things like analyze uh, the meta- you can perform metagenomic analysis on a sample to um, d- detect all the various pathogens that are present. And my, my research interest is specifically that. So I gave a second talk on um, clinical metagenomics based on a study that we had done here at UCT— looking at CSF metagenomics for 43 patients with um, unknown, uh, with a neurological infection of unknown etiology. We found quite good performance of metagenomic sequencing with a sensitivity of 76%, which is very much comparable to publications elsewhere in the world. Um, with the pathogens that we didn't detect being syphilis on two specimens, um, which which makes sense because syphilis is generally diagnosed um, with serological techniques rather than molecular detection um, of uh, syphilis DNA or treponema pallidum DNA. Um, so that, that made sense. Um, the other pathogen we didn't detect is mycobacterium tuberculosis, which is what also dropped the sensitivity a little bit. Um, but that again also makes sense. Mycobacterium tuberculosis is notoriously difficult to detect in CSF using molecular techniques. And then the the other talk that I gave was on implementing a in house diagnostic test versus a commercial assay, and the the benefits and disadvantages of either approach, such as commercial assays, which might be more expensive, but they're they're often Easier to implement, um, while in-house developed assays are quite flexible, and you can rapidly adjust to the needs of the laboratory, but um, are dependent on multiple, comp- often dependent on multiple components, each of which has um, its own supply chain, and if one component breaks down, that might result in the entire assay not being being offered at your lab. So considerations when implementing these two types of assays. And that that was my talks hi so i'm here with jonas Gebrekristos, and um he just presented in a session that i attended so jonas can you tell me a bit about yourself yeah my name is
2: jonas i work at the uh, greenpoint tv laboratory uh, cape town i'm the tv lab manager there. i've been working in tv department for the last 15 years
1: Okay, great. Um, and tell me, which uh, session did you present in, and what was the title of your talk? So the session was in microbiology, TB session
2: to be specific, and the title was Something from Nothing. Sensitivity of Expert Ultra um, on Contaminated Cultures for TB Detection
1: and rifampicin Resistance. Awesome. That sounds really interesting. Can you maybe give me just a few brief points and a take-home message from your talk? Okay. So, and this thing
2: is, we are just looking at rescuing some results from specimens; otherwise, they would have been discarded. So, by doing ultra on contaminated cultures, we can clearly inform clinicians the result of their patients. instead of waiting for weeks or months, or not even get the specimen uh, submitted
1: from the patient. That that's fantastic. Um, and uh, just a, just a last question: Were there any interesting questions from the audience, or maybe a question that you wish they asked you?
2: Uh, there were some uh, questions that came up uh, because um, they were asking how can they actually implement this in their setting, which I encourage them. So this is a proof of concept we are actually providing to the to the labs, and it's to, up to the labs to take on this um, assay and do it. Um, I mean, uh, implement it in their
1: setting. Oh thanks so much Jonas, That's a, it's a really great talk and a really nice session and I, I believe you, you chaired the session as well, so um, kudos, it was great. And also happy birthday, it's Jonas' birthday today, I, I, I promised I wouldn't but I, I couldn't help myself.
0: Hi there, so today I am with a Professor Felicity Burt and she is a virologist, Felicity can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Okay, so thank you. Thank you for inviting me to have a
3: chat to you. So, um, I'm, an, I'm from the University of the Free State and NHLS, it's a joint position. And I've worked on arboviruses and viral hemorrhagic fevers throughout my entire career. I have a research group in Bloemfontein, that, and we investigate arboviruses of medical significance. Okay. That's perfect. (laughs) Uh, I also hold a a SARTI chair in um, vector-borne
0: and zoonotic pathogens research. Excellent. And you presented this morning at the Virology Workshop. Can you tell us what the title of your talk was?
3: Okay, so um, I did a session with one of my colleagues. We were looking at emerging viral infections. Um, so she initially presented to give the background and the principles of why we see um, emerging infectious diseases and then mine was sort of a follow-up as to give some examples of various viruses and hemorrhagic fevers that have emerged and to discuss um, a couple of outbreaks and why those pathogens may have emerged and how that
0: outbreak was brought under control. Can you give us a quick summary of the pathogens you discussed? I found it quite fascinating. thank you, thank you.
3: So do I, but I'm very biased. Um, So I selected pathogens, three that are transmitted by mosquitoes and three that are transmitted by um, ticks. So the ones that are transmitted by the mosquitoes, um, I selected one called Zika virus, which caused a huge outbreak in South America in 2015. Prior to that it was not considered to have been associated with any significant disease and during that outbreak it was um, identified as a cause of severe congenital deformities um, in babies born to mothers that were infected during pregnancy and it was also associated with some patients developing the Guillain-Barre syndrome. So we now associate this with severe neurological um, complications. Um, That was brought under control probably by the um, extent of the outbreak and what we refer to as herd immunity. Um, Initially when it was brought into South America it was a naive population, non-immune population and probably the extent of it remembering that a lot of arboviruses cause asymptomatic infections, so that helps to, to um, develop sufficient herd immunity that the, outbreak, that the outbreak ended, and now we just see small sporadic cases. They also covered um, yellow fever, which has a long history of mm. infections. And for that, we have a highly efficacious vaccine. So I included that, Want to give a little bit of the history of it, which goes back to the 1600s, Mm. and how it was identified as being transmitted by mosquitoes. And one of the recent outbreaks, it's it's endemic in Africa and um, South America. And so although we see it circulating here, we still see outbreaks emerging in areas where there's been a gap. So, Angola hadn't had an outbreak for about 30 years. Mm-hmm. And there was quite a significant one in 2016. But because there's a vaccine, it's much easier to control and reduce the number of cases. Right. This causes something like a 40 to 50% fatality rate. So, it does have significant medical. Um, medical significance. Yep, the other thing from that is that the mosquito that's primarily responsible for transmitting it belongs to the IUD species, mm-hmm. and with global warming, movement of people and populations mm. and tyres and things like that, we've seen this, this um, mosquito spread um, to other parts of the world, including right. Europe, etc. And it is also present in Asia. Mm. So if we have imported cases... Of infected people, there is a potential for it to establish itself in an in, in area where like it is not currently endemic. Yeah. So that's one of the concerns with yellow fever. Right. There's a vaccine, but we need to watch it. Okay. Um, then the other mosquito-borne one I selected is actually has a very low fatality rate, mm-hmm. but causes severe arthritis, chronic, debilitating arthritis, chikungunya. Mm. Um, now that one's... We sort of associated it with circulating in Africa, and then in 2004 it spread out of Africa into the Indian Ocean Islands, across to India, and then in 2013 it moved across to the Americas. Um, One of the reasons I also included that is one of the things that will facilitate the spread of this virus is a little mutation in the envelope gene, an adaptive mutation that has allowed it to adapt to a new vector. And that new vector, is what we call a highly invasive mosquito, Aedes albopictus. Okay. And that mosquito's distribution has also spread around the world quite significantly in the last 20 years. So things like that play a huge role in um, spreading these viruses around. Mm-hmm. And then I discussed Congo fever, which is a mosquito, uh, sorry, a tick borne virus that we have in South Africa. Yes. Its distribution is really associated with its its vector which is a high tick mm-hmm. and we've, we've seen it mostly in Africa and Asia but there's huge concern that with global warming and spread of the ticks mm-hmm. that we're going to see it in other parts of Europe. Um, so it causes viral hemorrhagic fever, 50%, uh, sorry, 30% fatality rate, it's emerged in a number of places in recent years and in southern Europe we've seen it now in cases in Spain, in Greece and uh, uh, Turkey has a huge number of cases, so there's certainly concern, there's no vaccine and little is known about treatment or anything like that, so there is a concern for that. It is on the WHO uh, priority pathogen list for research because of the severity of disease, the fatality rate and the lack of vaccine, although there are now some vaccines that have been developed and are in early phase trials. Okay. So maybe there's there's something for that. So
0: when you say the WHO priority pathogen yes. list, yes, which priority pathogen list is this? Is this for emerging viruses? Because they've got a couple of different they, lists. Yeah, they do. So
3: this yeah. is one for vi- for, for viruses. viruses. Okay. Yes, um, and it's it's focusing on which pathogens should research be focused on, right. so that we can d- um, develop Together. vaccines. And antivirals to know more about it but a lot of these lists are also currently being updated but Congo I think will still stay on okay. it. So then I've just selected two other tick-borne viruses mm-hmm. um, they're actually quite s- focused in their geographic region okay. Um one is in China but it was first identified in 2009. Mm-hmm. Since then, there have been about 10,000 cases, which is quite a high number of cases and a 45% fatality rate. Okay. So it's been seen in China, Japan, Thailand, Myanmar and Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Uh, tick form, and that tick is sort of distributed in that area, but there is evidence that that tick is moving to other places as well. Okay, And so it is also quite an interesting pathogen. Um, that needs to be kept an eye on as a concern for causing outbreaks in other areas. So what's the name of this virus? So that one is virus.
0: You know, that was the first time that I'd heard about it yesterday in your talk. I'd never heard
3: of it before. So it's only recently been given that name. It was previously referred to as... Um, severe fever with thrombocytopenia syndrome, so that's what it calls it. A muscle virus. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm quite glad they've now called it Debbie virus. Okay. They've given it a new genus, Davivirus genus. Okay. So, yes, so, you know, 10,000 cases since 2009 is quite significant. Yeah. It all seems to be amongst rural people living in a certain area exposed to ticks. And then the last one I selected is a is emerged in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and I did it because it's related to dengue virus, so it's okay. genetically related. Very few number of cases, sixty or seventy, and no fatalities. Wow. But you know, the more these things spread, and the more one looks at it, the more very sometimes analytical. more, more you learn more about it. True. Sometimes they go undiagnosed for quite a while before you realize the medical significance True. of it. I think Zika is an excellent example of that. Mm-hmm. We used to think it just sort of circulated around the Zika forest in Uganda. Right. And now it's really causes significant neurological complications. Absolutely.
0: Great. So that's a wonderful summary. And I think that listeners are definitely going to enjoy that. My last question is, did you find any useful or interesting questions from the audience after your talk? Um, there was one, one, quest, one lady asked about mm-hmm. how we
3: select areas to, mm. so, to do surveillance. Yeah. And I think it's actually really such an important question. But I think at the moment, our surveillance is too, too many small pockets. Yes. I have a small group that does surveillance in this area and someone else has a small group and we need to come together and do broader biosurveillance so that we get a better picture. We need to include entomologists and virologists. I know how to find a virus, I know how to identify a virus and isolate it. Not so good at identifying the mosquitoes and the ticks. Right. So we need to work together with other disciplines Mm -hmm. so that we get a good picture of what species, where are they, what viruses are associated with them. Then we can bring in some modelers and some predictors to see what will happen in the future. We need a baseline in order to develop those
0: predictions. Okay. Great. Thank you so much, Felicity. Thank you. Thank I hope you. we can get you on the show for a full episode of <laughs> Viruses sometime in the future. It would be lovely. Thank you. Thanks really so much. Enjoy, enjoy talking about it.
1: Enjoy the rest of the Congress. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Hi, so I'm here with Gresham Kisten and uh, he just presented in a session that I attended. It was a really great talk. Um Gresham, can you maybe tell me a bit about yourself?
4: Hi, my name is Greshen, and I am um, a medical technologist at the TB laboratory in Cape Town, Greenpoint. And um, I performed the study on the comparison, the comparison of the Roche-Cobus RUF, mtb Rif INH assay against the GeneXpert MTB assay in a high-throughput laboratory. Awesome, that sounds really interesting. Um, and
1: uh, can I just ask, in, in which session were you presenting today?
4: In the latter part of the second session... Great. And, uh, and and what was the session on? The session was on mycobacteria and it included multiple st- research studies done with TB in South Africa. Great. Um, can you maybe give me a brief summary of your talk and maybe a take-home point or two? Um, basically, we compared the two different molecular assays for TB detection along with well already known assays that were currently being used. Um, Basically, the, Ro- the Roche-Cobus is a new assay that was implemented by the NHLS to device- diversify molecular platforms and to supplement the gene expert test wherever, it- wherever their shortfalls. And with this, we saw that the, G- the Roche has the ability to give a higher throughput of results within a shorter span of time. However, there is some compromisation with a decreased sensitivity by the assay. Fantastic.
1: Um, were there any
4: interesting questions from the audience uh, that you got? Um, a, a good question was one from a pathologist who asked about um, the impact of the quality. Um, this is this is a give and take with regards to testing, especially with high throughput testing. So, as I said, that we we use the molecular platforms to supplement each other. So, if there is a query or if clinically a patient um, shows that there may, may be a TB suspect, the, the doctor would have to request a specific test that may assist in this. Fantastic. Thanks so much.
0: Okay, so I've got Kemi here with me now. Hi, Kemi. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself?
5: Hi, Bim. Thank you. Um, I'm Oluwakemi Laguda Akinga. I'm a virologist based in um, Eastern Cape. Okay, um, and you're with the NHLS, hey? Yes, I am with NHLS, um, but I have a joint appointment with Walter Sisulu University. Okay, all right,
0: great. So, Kemi, uh, I assume you've been attending the virology sessions and you've got something to tell us about
5: virology. Uh, yeah, I've been um, attending the virus sessions, um, but um, I can tell you at least about the plenary I, yeah. the, from yesterday, okay. when, it, you know, when the discussion was based around sequencing, yes, bioinformatics and all that. That was and, fascinating. You know, yes. And you know, we were wondering, okay, what happens now? Because now the thing is, um, this is not usually, this is not used routinely in viral diagnostics. True. So the question is, are we going to move towards that way or not? So. Right. Well, that remains to be seen. Right. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> um, and then um, another talk that I did enjoy was the um, talk um, based on the association between SARS-CoV-2 PCR um, CT values right. and clinical outcomes. Because I know during the pandemic and even now mm-hmm. we don't do COVID viral loads. That's you know, true. We we just do the qualitative. It's qualitative. Just a qualitative piece. Piece. Yes. Yeah. Yes or no. Yeah. Yeah. But based on the talk, we can't really use the CT values to determine if this is severe, this will be severe or not. Oh really? We, yeah, yeah, so we can't, yeah. Okay, so you're saying that the viral loads are not helpful? No, 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 I'm not saying that. Okay. Because we did do um, a validation in my lab right. for viral load, okay. um, which has been sent off to, you know, but um, so when that is final, when the report is finally out, then we can, okay. but the viral loads, at least it did Work, but the thing was, we did a validation, we didn't really compare with clinical outcomes. Okay, yeah, okay, great. okay And um, the other talk that I found interesting was from, from today mm-hmm. it is the um, diversity of enteroviruses detected in diarrheal stool specimens okay. from outing um, Trani region, right? In outing, yeah, okay. And um, yeah, they did find. Um, different vi- uh, viruses in the stool samples, like they found Coxsackie B6, um, then of course they found poliovirus 1 right. and 3, but vaccine-derived um, okay. circulating strains. Okay. And um, so this shows, you know, for me, I kind of felt, well, this um, emphasizes the need for surveillance, gotcha. particularly for poliovirus where, you know, there is this You know, the need to eradicate polio and how challenging it has been to eradicate because of all the circulating strains. And um, we do know that um, polio type 2 and type um, 3 has been eradicated, but and that we still have um, wild type polio, um, wild type 1, but. Mm the ones that they detected was type one and type V, the um, okay. circulating strain. So yes, yeah, so those are some of the um, talks that I That's kind really of enjoyed. Yeah.
0: Thanks, Kimmy. So that last study was it geared towards developing surveillance systems, or you think that was
5: ultimately what they would recommend in the end? I don't think it was Gator's okay. surveillance because it was a master student from University of Pretoria. You okay. know that, um, the surveillance for polyvirus at least will be, you know, it wouldn't be from from the university, from the university, the university NICB, yeah. Yeah. but for me it was surprising that, you know, they were able to, you know, like they picked it up and then from the results we see that, okay, this is what is circulating. So it means that we have these viruses circulating. <laughs> are still circulating exactly. in the environment. So, yeah, so. Yeah it means that we need to be, vigilant. you know, vigilant. Yeah, that's the word, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly with viruses, you know, with all these outbreaks and we don't know what's next yeah. and all of that, yeah. Okay, great. Thank okay. you so much for that feedback and enjoy the rest
0: of the conference, Kevin. Th- thank you, you too. Okay, yeah. bye.
1: Bye. Hi, I'm here with Amika, who just uh, presented at a session I attended and um, just wanted to chat a bit about her presentation. So Amika, can you tell me about yourself?
6: Um, I'm a PhD student at Stellenbosch University and I am doing research on hypervirulent Klebsiella pneumoniae isolates from the Western Cape.
1: Awesome, great. And so, can you tell me in which session you were presenting today and what the title of your talk was?
6: So, it was the second session in the MetaMicro track and I presented on hypervirulent um, Klebsiella pneumoniae strains from the Western Cape of South Africa.
1: Great. And uh, for our listeners, can you give me a short summary of the findings of your study and maybe any interesting questions that you were asked?
6: Yeah, so um, the main finding of our study is just that we found seven um, hypervirulent Klebsiella pneumonia isolates from our sample set, which included clinical and carriage strains. And, uh, yeah, this is just quite significant because um, these strains are rapidly increasing, so it's interesting to see that they are circulating in our setting. Um, Luckily, all of these were carbapenem susceptible And then questions were just with regards to how we screened or which um, genes we used for the market. Here's the screen for these isolates and the main marker we used was aerobactin.
1: It's really interesting. Very, very ironically, I was literally yesterday looking at our data, fig- trying to figure out how I'm going to determine whether our isolates were hypervirulins or not. So it's really helped me as well. Thanks so much. It's a
6: pleasure.
0: We'd love your feedback. So please let us know by email or on social media if you'd like to hear more on these topics or if you have any comments based on the clips you've just heard. So that's it. Until next time, that's it for me, Vin, and the rest of the MicroMail team. See you again soon with more Contagious Mail.